This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. By 1942, the air over Germany was aflame with German fighters battling Allied bombers for the survival of Europe in the free world. Central to this air war were the planes of the Allies. At first, they were obsolete and woefully inadequate death traps and fell from the skies like crushed autumn leaves. But with the advent of planes like the P-47 Thunderbolt and the P-51 Mustang, the tide of war was about to change. But no airplane fights a war. It must be flown by a skilled pilot. A man like Clarence Bud Anderson, who first flew the revolutionary P-51 Mustang while escorting bombers over Germany. But in the evil dark skies ahead lay in wait the fighters of the Luftwaffe, who would challenge Bud Anderson and his amazing new airplane. He would soon learn the best and the worst his incredible machine had to offer. Yeah, I flew uh, P-51s in World War II, uh, flying from England in the European theater with the 357th Fighter Group, part of the 8th Air Force, escorting heavy bombers over Europe. I flew uh, two tours of combat, um, total of 116 missions, 480 hours and 20 minutes of combat flying, and uh, my I had 16 and a quarter uh, victories and one in the air, one on the ground, and a couple other probables and damaged in the air too. Generally, generally speaking, uh, while we were escorting the bombers, uh, we we had a pretty set pattern of how to fly. The bomber stream would be going straight ahead. Uh, and we would set up in, on a 45, 45 degree t to them, making 90 degree turns, kind of zigzagging over the top of the bombers. And we'd put airplanes there close to the bombers, and then we'd uh, put flights out to the side that could range around and go up ahead of them so we could break off uh, where they were massing the airplanes to come in and make head-on attacks. And uh, with this pretty high altitude, you'd be from 25, 25, 30,000 uh, feet, which is pretty high in those days, unpressurized airplanes. And that was another disadvantage of the P-51. It was pretty cold up there and then those temperatures. Uh, and we always operated in group strength. I'm talking about 48 airplanes. Every time we went out, we took a whole group. That'd be three squadrons of 16 airplanes flying four ships. It'd be a four ship. And you could look at it this way as uh, those are four airplanes, four airplanes, and four airplanes. That'd be, that'd be a squadron formation too. And it was very maneuverable and, uh, and uh, uh, capable. So then you got into this position and everybody's looking across each other to look for enemy airplanes. The two leaders, the element leader and the flight leader, their job was to look for the enemy uh, in an aggressive manner, you know, to attack rather than from a defensive standpoint. Your wingmen look back for defense. The P-51 was an amazing aggressive aircraft and it flew into service in the European theater when abilities of planes like the Spitfire were being severely taxed. Uh, it arrived 
in a combat configuration, the B and the D model with the Rolls-Royce engine uh, at a time when it was needed. And the big features that uh, the P-51 had was its long range. I mean, it could go anywhere that the heavy bombers could go and come back, stay with them, and, and bring them home. So it, it arrived at a time when the daylight bombing was in jeopardy. They were having uh, heavy losses when they would get out of fighter escort range. And now here we come with a P-51 that can take them all the way into Germany, all the way to Posen, Poland, down to Czechoslovakia, wherever in Europe stay with them and bring them back. So that was, uh, that was the key feature in that theater for the P-51. Of course, um, the other features that um, made the P-51 so special was its uh, high maneuverability and high performance. It was very fast um, on the deck, on the ground, or at high altitude due to the uh, two-stage, two-speed supercharger. And so adding it up, the long range, the uh, high speed maneuverability were the key features of the P-51. Comparing the P-51 with uh, different Allied fighters, um, uh, they were built for different things uh, and then depends on what you're going to use them for. For example, uh, if you want to say uh, compare a Spitfire with a P-51, uh, the Spitfire couldn't go where the Mustang goes, and so, and you know, a lightweight P-51 uh, with the fuel load down and the ammo load down, uh, a good pilot could hold his own with a Spitfire. But a Spitfire was built to defend right over the airfield, point defense. And of course it was highly maneuverable. Uh, but the Mustang could hold its own with, you know, a lot depended on the pilot. But uh, we used to like to say that the Mustang could do all day uh, over Berlin what the, what the uh, Spitfire could do for 45 minutes over its own airfield. The P-51, um, of course, was originally designed for ground attack. The A-36, the, the very original model of what the P-51 uh, became, was a ground attack airplane. Uh, the only ground, I had, we did some ground attack um, around invasion time, uh, June the 6th, when we invaded Europe. They took all the 8th Air Force fighter groups and put us in a ring behind the beaches, away from the beaches. And uh, for 30 days we went over there with a, a whole fighter group twice a day and shot up everything that moved in the, on the ground. And then of course sometimes we would have ground attack missions uh, set up back in Germany or you'd freelance on your way home, uh, shooting up trains and things like this. One of the disadvantages of the P-51 was a liquid-cooled engine that had to have a radiator to keep the engine cool. And, of course, if you got a hole in your radiator system and you lost your coolant, uh, that was, that'd be pretty devastating. You know, you don't fly much longer without your coolant. 
But so against ground attack, you might get a piece of flak or a bullet hole through your coolant system. And, you know, that was a hazard. But that was not the only downside of the tricky fighter plane. Well, the P-51s, um, uh, a beautiful airplane as it was, uh, had some bad bad flight characteristics. Uh, the, there was a 85-gallon fuselage tank located right behind the pilot, and that gave it a FCG when you were um, uh, flying at a full fuel load. So fuel management was important. Uh, if you were going to go on a very long-range flight, you um, need to manage your fuel properly. And if you had to have that all of the fuel, say like you took off on a main tank, go to your externals, drop the drop your externals, go onto your internal fuel, burn down half of the fuselage tank, then you had a stable airplane. But uh, supposing you got jumped early with a full fuselage tank, then you're fighting with an unstable airplane until you got that tank down. After you got the tank down to half, it was a beautiful airplane. And b being an unstable airplane, uh, just meant that it was uh, real tricky to fly. You got a stick force reversal and and in a tight turn the thing would try to uh, wrap up real tight and you'd be holding forward on the stick. Uh, very unnatural for a pilot. Other features that uh, early when we had the B models with the four guns uh, we had a lot of gun problems. The gun would stop firing and uh, but generally speaking uh, the airplane performance was so vastly better than the opposition in my opinion that uh, you know you kind of overlooked some of these things and you could work around the unstable um, flying part the the biggest advantage I saw of the P-51 over the opposition the Germans um, was its performance, generally speaking. Um, I always felt that I could outmaneuver any German airplane with the P-51. And therefore, you know, I had, I had that to me was the big advantage. Uh, if I saw an ME-109 or an FW-190, it didn't matter to me. You know, I felt I could outmaneuver them, uh, outperform them, no matter where I was. But it would take more than fast airplanes to kill the German juggernaut. The men behind the joystick made all the difference. What characteristics make a, a good fighter pilot? Or what characteristics separate the good fighter pilot from the, the super pilot or the, or the ace, you might say? Uh, it's a little hard to... Um, there's so many factors that are really kind of indivisible. Uh, not one being more important than the other. Uh, training probably, you know, the guy with the most experience generally is going to be the best pilot. So experience level was very important. If you had uh, lots of training, lots of flying time, uh, that was important. Uh, knowing your airplane, knowing your tactics, knowing the enemy, knowing his tactics and capabilities was important. Uh, personal traits, um, eyesight, 
was important in World War II because, you know, we didn't have radar and, uh, and things like this. You had to see them, you know, it was all visual. And most of the aces that I know had exceptional vision. And uh, I had good vision. Every, all pilots had to have 20-20 eyesight, but uh, mine would test out to 2010 or 2015, which is, you know, better than normal. And then there's also kind of a knack of being able to see enemy airplanes. You know, and maybe there's a little motivation there too, you know, you do you want to see them. <laughs> but um, most of the aces that I know personally had good, good eyesight. And um, uh, that gave them an advantage. You know, if, you're, if you see somebody before he sees you, you can get yourself into a, a position of advantage to um, attack. Uh, everything being uh, gunnery was very important, uh, knowing how to shoot. Uh, this is in the days of uh, essentially like World War I, you know, we had a fixed gun sight. And uh, instead of a ring and bead, we had an electronic <laughs> ring and bead, you might say, until we got the K-14 gun sight later in the war. That was a gyro gun sight, and that made a lot of difference too. But um, Having that training and knowing how to lead an, an enemy, estimate the range and your angle off and uh, where to aim ahead of the, it's like bird shooting, like shooting quail. Uh, it takes experience and uh, uh, so, th so that was very important. Now, I've been asked many times, you know, if, you know, what made the difference between one or the other and I've thought about it a lot say everything being equal suppose the pilots were trained equally and you know there, there's hardly any difference then i think there's some kind of um uh, some people call it a fighting spirit something something inside uh, i would say it's probably motivation uh probably makes a makes a real difference between uh, uh, the enemy and yourself or amongst your amongst your own peers. Another, another factor in this, um, in the fighting was, uh, it probably sounds corny today, but was patriotism. Uh, you go back to World War II, and our entire country was involved in the war. I mean, 100%. There wasn't a family in the United States that was not affected by the war in some manner. The other thing is, um, it's a little bit hard to say. Um, uh, we were young. Most of the guys I know, that you know, aces or, well, all of us fighting, were young. It was a big adventure. Um, uh, I hate to say that I enjoyed flying combat, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it certainly was a big adventure at that time. Uh, I had several one-on-one um, -on -one engagements. Uh, uh, most of the time, uh, a kill is done by, there's an enemy airplane, you come up, sneak up behind him and shoot him down, and that's it. 
but uh, I had several engagements where I'm fighting individually with a, with a, a German, German airplane. Probably my most uh, memorable one was uh, one time when we, I think it was in the spring, probably May of 1944, in the spring of 44 anyway, and uh, we were on a bomber escort mission. The, the weather was clear, absolutely brilliant clear, you know, from 30,000 feet we could see the ground and we could see everything. Uh, which is unusual because weather was usually a factor in almost everything you did in uh, in Europe uh, in World War II. The, um, we were escorting bombers and we were, they were just about to go from France into Germany and I'm escorting over the top of the, of the bombers in this zigzag, a close escort. And as we made this uh, 90 degree turn, um, we, well, first we heard on the radio up ahead of us there was uh, activity going on. Enemy airplanes were starting to attack. So we dropped our tanks, uh, made a sharp turn to follow the bomber stream to get up ahead to see what was going on. Well, when we made that turn, that threw my flight to the outside. And, of course, whenever you're the last flight and you're in a turn, you're vulnerable. So I remember looking back over my right shoulder up high just about the time my wingman said, hey, we got four bogeys coming in at uh, five o'clock high. That meant five enemy air, four enemy airplanes attacking us from the rear. So uh, obviously they were attacking us. We're the last flight and uh, so we had to break into them. They're coming down like this. We break into them, try to, try to come back directly at them, make a head-on pass. And uh, this was still, this was around 30,000 feet. And uh, so we made them, that broke their, they could not attack us, that broke their attack and they went out here. That put us all in string. I mean, uh, four airplanes, one behind the other, and four Germans, one behind the other. And now here we are going around and around like this up there. Well, it was right at the altitude where the P-51's um, two-stage, two-speed supercharger gave you full power. And uh, so, you know, here we are at full RPM and full throttle, and we're gaining on these um, Messerschmitt ME-109s. And we gradually gained on them and starting to make that turn where, you know, they could see us cutting, cutting them off. Uh, so they decided, they rolled out and went directly east back into Germany, just in level flight, which is pretty unusual. Normally, the Germans were trying to attack the bombers and uh, probably didn't give the fighters that much uh, concern. So here these guys are attacking fighters. They're running level. They want to fight. They're not diving to the ground as soon as uh, the, you know they see a disadvantage. So we line up behind them start to chase them. The number, the fourth guy starts to climb. Well, this would have put us underneath him and then, you know, he could have dropped down on us. So I sent my element, my other two guys, started to chase him. They chased him and eventually shot him down in a separate conflict. Now we got three guys ahead of us and the two, my, myself and my wingman, following. Straight and level. 
uh, Mustang wide open, just gradually crept right up behind him, got within range, just a, a, a zero angle off, just the perfect kind of a shot you want. Dead astern, get in close, fire, you get hits, flame, you know, very simple. The guy rolls over and he's, he's, he's through. Now we got the other two guys and uh, they're starting to dance around a little bit, probably talking on the radio, this guy's getting shot. And the flight leader makes a very hard turn like this and the wingman rolls over and heads for the ground. So now I've got the one flight leader and myself and my wingman. So he made such a sharp turn that I couldn't, I couldn't get behind him. You know, uh, uh, it's almost like a 90 degree shot and you can't hit anything at 90 degrees. You gotta be around here uh, closer to the zero angle off. So uh, I decided to maintain my airspeed and zoom over the top of him and pull up like this. Well, as soon as I did that, he turned around and tried to start to chase us. He reversed his turn, came underneath, and now my wingman is vulnerable. So I told him to, hey, take it down, uh, you know, do some evasive maneuvers to uh, thwart his attack. And sure enough, the wingman goes down, the Messerschmitt starts to follow him. Well, now that puts me right behind again. Now I'm right behind the uh, Messerschmitt. And of course he sees us, this guy is experienced, he's a flight leader. My wingman's gone, now it's flight leader versus flight leader, one on one. So here we go, and uh, he's going down, separates out, and I'm coming in again on him. He makes a very hard turn again. Here I am, I'm, you know, looking at him, 90 degrees, point blank, and I can't do anything, so again I pull over the top of him. He follows, comes around after me now. And I keep pulling up, pulling up, pulling up. And I keep looking back over my left shoulder, I can close my eyes today and still see that nose of that uh, Messerschmitt down there trying to pull it. Now he's got to get his nose above me to get a shot. He has to lead me. So he's down here below. And I'm pulling and he's pulling and I'm pulling. And we're going steeper and steeper and steeper. Well, pretty soon we're going to run out of airspeed and, and ideas, and the first one that does is in a little bit of a trouble. Well, sure enough, I saw him. He started to sh shudder just before I did, and he stalls and I stall, and we turn the airplanes around, and here we go down again. And uh, now I'm back in the driver's seat. He flies on out, separates. Here he comes again, another hard turn, just like this, and there I am again. It's not quite the same this time. And I didn't like being up there in that position with him behind me. So I said, this time I'm gonna try something a little bit different. I put down a little bit of flaps, pulled back on the power just a little bit and really pulled that thing in. And uh, he saw this and sure enough, I was gonna make it. I see that I could make it. So he reverses his turn and pulls the airplane straight up. and. Uh, he probably thought that I had um, pulled it back to idle and sucked it in like this. If I had, I would, I would not have any energy and I'd just kind of fall out of the sky. But instead, I had a lot of power. I just shoved the power full up, followed him up, 
and I got him up here going about 45 degrees. It felt like I was right in the, almost in the top of a loop and uh, started firing about 30 degrees. Well, no, it was, it was in closer, about 20 degrees and uh, got hits all around the uh, fuselage, the cockpit and everything. After I stopped firing, you know, it was a big burst of um, coolant and it was an ME-109 coolant and smoke and uh, pieces coming off. I coasted right up alongside of him and here I am just sitting, I mean, flying formation with him and he started to roll like this. The cockpit was full of smoke and I could count the rivets on the airplane. I was that close and see the grease in the wheel well and all that. And he rolled over and uh, started down a very steep angle, not maneuvering, just straight. And it was so clear that I could follow the smoke uh, trail very easily. And uh, I followed him down to about 25,000 feet and I got up to a very high speed, you know, enough where I didn't want to go any faster. And I thought, well, okay, if he's uh, survived, you know, uh, we'll fight him another day. But uh, I, f I followed him down. Pretty soon I could see his shadow, and uh, it's pretty dramatic. He flew, you know, he met his shadow and burst in a, a big explosion. It was a pretty dramatic day. We joined up our flight and uh, uh, rejoined and went back and escorted the bombers, went home. We'd uh, shot down three out of the four that day pretty successful. I got my fifth uh, kill without firing a shot and uh, we were coming home just a four ship, four ship uh, flight and uh, we were down in southern France somewhere and all of a sudden these um, Focke-Wolfs were above us, and they started attacking us. Well, every time they'd come down, we'd turn into them, and we'd break off the tack. They'd go right back up to their high spot, and they'd keep tracking us, and then they'd come down again, and we'd uh, break into them, and they'd pull up, and they stayed at the position of advantage. And uh, we're trying to work our way home toward the coast, and all of a sudden, a P-47 comes screaming down on us. And, you know, he probably thought we were ME-109s. Well, what do we got to do? We got to break into him and, uh, and you know, make him knock off his attack. And then he probably saw they were P-51s. I can see that poor guy today, you know, he pulled up like this and pull it. he was probably looking back, says, oh, shucks, P-51s. And this fuck wolf came right down, just zap right on his tail, blew him up. Well, the, the Fock Wolf lost all of his energy when he did that. He had to pull it in tight, and that put me right on his tail. And, I, and just as soon as I got there in a position to shoot, the guy pulls up, bails out. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I became an ace with a, no, no shooting. You have to realize that the Germans were over, over their own territory. They had lots of airplanes. Pilots were one of their problems. They were short pilots. And uh, later on, this was still in the spring of uh, 44 when they were, you know, it was still touch and go. We were trying to get air superiority. But sure, if, if the guy's going to just about to be shot down, 
flip over and bail out, and he's going to survive. We got a lot of them that uh, bailed out very quickly, you know, when they uh, got hit or damaged. They were very quick to bail out. But the German pilots survived to fight another day with a terrifying, potentially war-winning machine, the ME-262 jet fighter. After we started seeing the German jet airplanes, uh, my good buddy uh, Chuck Yeager, of course, uh, shot one down. And uh, uh, he doesn't tell many people that he shot it down, but he shot it down with the gear down. He got it in the traffic pattern. Well, that's really about the only way you can get them. And of course, I was anxious to, you know, see a, a jet airplane and, and uh, get one. And uh, I was I was experienced when this happened. We're uh, we're going on our way into Germany, and we're all flying kind of a line abreast, uh, you know, more in, in line going out. We still had our drop tanks, and um, I saw this jet off to my right, and very low, and he's at 90 degrees to us, going underneath. He's going to go underneath us, but you know, way down. I mean, something like eight, nine thousand feet. So I'm thinking of a plan. I, I now, if I, if I wait right here and he flies underneath me at, the, at this point, um, and if I do it just right, I'll drop my tanks, I'll roll over and make a 90 degree turn while I roll over, then I can dive and I'll stay upside down and then I can look through the top of the canopy, see him and come down and then just at the right time roll out underneath him. And so I'm waiting and I'm waiting and uh, just at the right time I drop my tanks. Well, the engine quit. <laughs> I, had, I had forgot to switch to the main tank, you know, before you dropped the thing. I was rolled over here. I was at, here I was 30,000 feet upside down with the prop ran away. And, um, but I got, this, I got the tank changed. I got it over, got the prop under control, and I still think I can pull it off. You know, here I am going down, upside down. I say, hey, I'm really gaining on this guy. And so I come down, I pull around underneath him and pull up, put the sight on him. Well, I was still, maybe if I had fired right then, I might have been, you know, able to get hits. But I thought, boy, I've been really diving here. I'm going to close on the guy. And he just disappeared right behind the pipper in the sight. <laughs> he, he probably had a 100, 100 mile an hour advantage in speed over me, so it was kind of ridiculous. One other time I chased uh, one that had uh, come through the bombers and was diving away. And I was the closest one to him, and so I rolled in and, and started down with him. Well, God, he, he probably had 250 knots advantage going away, but, you know, we're going to go after him. And I got my flight with me. We're going down. Pretty soon I looked around behind me, and here's P-51s and P-47s and airplanes coming from all directions. You know, the whole damn 8th Air Force is coming after him, and I, didn't, and I was in front, and I didn't like that at all, so I just broke off there and left it. Our group shot down 17 German jets, which was the most that any group uh, got in in, uh, in World War II. And some of them, uh, if, if the uh, Germans used the jets properly, uh, 
we we couldn't we couldn't do too much. You know, if they used their speed advantage, they could. But if they tried to turn and dogfight, a Mustang would just eat them right up. And yeah, we could uh, outturn them, and then they'd lose their speed, and then you just you could just get right on right on their tail. Uh, you don't celebrate in a sense of. Um, well, you know, it's more I celebrate surviving. Um, uh, and and then there's a thing about killing. Uh, you know, I was raised a religious background, and uh, but you got into this situation, it's uh, kill or be killed. And, you know, you do what you have to do. And I, I didn't... Uh, I didn't come back. I guess, well, I guess I have to look back and think. Yeah, I think it was more you were happy that you survived rather than you say, "Hey, I, uh, I, I got one." Although there was uh, there was a lot of that. I mean, people were you know pretty pretty happy when you uh, shot down an airplane. Another of those happy pilots was a friend of Clarence Anderson named Francis Gabby Gabreski, who flew the same war-torn skies over Europe in a larger, even more deadly fighter than the P-51. It was the plane known affectionately to its pilots as the Jug, the Republic P-47. But the first thing any pilot in the European air war needed was training, the best training they could get. Fighter pilots or anything else that you undertake, you're not born into it. You're trained into it. And the more training that you can get, the longer you do it, the better you become. So that was my case. I flew the P-36 and the P-40 in, in, in Hawaii. And after the war broke out, I was transferred to European Theater of Operations. But I had 500 hours. I had 500 hours flying time versus <clears throat> the new lieutenants that the 56th fighter group came over. They had 150 hours. So they barely checked out in their own airplane. In other words, they finished flying school and they barely checked out in their own airplane and they were in combat. So I, th I think I had the, uh, the proper training. And then, of course, I had very good leadership. I had good leadership in, uh, in my group commander, which was uh, Colonel Hub Semke, probably one of, the, uh, one of the finest group commanders we had in the European theater of operation. So it's a combination of everything. And then we had a group of youngsters that were very energetic and eager. In other words, they weren't looking for an excuse to, uh, to abort the mission. They wanted to get at the, at the enemy. So we had uh, exceptions to the rule that some of them weren't too eager, and they, uh, they went by the wayside. But we sifted it down in time where we had a fighting competitive group. I learned to fly in the P-36, which was old technology fighters in Hawaii, and I also flew the P-40, which was old technology, uh, with the Allison engine, and it was a big nose up front, the propeller extended way forward and so forth. But uh, there were great trainers, 
and uh, the Flying Tigers did a reasonably good job in uh, China uh, with the uh, P-40, but in a European theater of operations, they wouldn't exist for one one mission. And uh, it was uh, it wasn't the airplane that you'd want to do combat with because it was inferior to the 109. The uh, 190, 109's old technology. Remember that the, the 109 started out as a development in the 1930s, and they used it in combat for the very first time in Spain, the Civil War. And then, of course, they did a reasonable job there, and uh, it, it was it was the backbone of the. Uh, German fighter Luftwaffe later on. However, in 1941, there was a development of the of the uh, Falkov 190, which was a bigger which was a bigger airplane. It was a better airplane. It was a little bit heavier and a little bit uh, a little bit faster. So, the technologies were changing considerably. So when I uh, speak of the P-47 now, it's what I flew in the European Theater of Operations. The early P-47A and B was, uh, it was an airplane that was never tested. It came off the assembly line, and the pilots of the 56th Fighter Group picked it up as their operational uh, equipment, and they're the ones that did the test work on it. Many of them did that test work at Farmingdale. Uh, New York, but they were the first ones to take the complete group of 100 airplanes over the European Theater of Operations. And uh, I joined uh, the group, thank God that I had a little bit of experience because I flew with the Polish Air Force for 20 missions. I flew with them for about three months operationally to learn a little bit about the operations in the European theater before our forces arrived. So when our forces, the 56th Fighter Group arrived, why I was transferred from my t uh, temporary duty uh, work with the uh, 315 uh, squadron that had spit nines, mm -hmm. and when you look at a spit nine and look at a Falkov one or or a P forty seven, they're entirely different type aircraft. One is a escort aircraft, and the other is an interceptor. The uh, 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 spit uh, spit nine was a good interceptor. As a matter of fact, uh, it uh, gave the Germans a real heartache over over Germany because the rate of climb, the uh, maneuverability, so forth. But everything was done over over England. It had an endurance of about one hour and five minutes, an hour and ten minutes. You had to land someplace, and of course, if you weren't over England, why, you were lost to the uh, to the operations of the war. So the P-47, as I went from the uh, Spit 9 into the uh, P-47, I remember the first time I saw the P-47 was at Gox Hill, uh, which was in England, the, the uh, western coast of uh, England, as we were doing some operational training there, and when I looked at the airplane and compared it to what it looked, what the Spitfire looked like, it was just about the twice the size of a Spitfire. Well, uh, I uh, had to kind of adjust my thinking a little bit because that was the airplane I was going to do combat with, in for the next until. Uh, Either I uh, 
was shot down or uh, something else happened to me. So anyway, when I, when I saw the airplane, I looked at it, it was, my God, what a, they call it the jug. And the reason they call it the jug, it looks like a jug. It's great big, it's puffed out. And uh, what makes it so big is the, uh, are the ducts that fit underneath the airplane. They go from the engine to the turbine superchargers, which that's in the tail end of the airplane. And a turbine supercharger is what makes the airplane because you derive the 2,000 horsepower that you do at, at ground level up to its, what you call, uh, ultimate level of 30,000 feet. So everything from zero ground level up to 30,000 feet, I can, I can draw 2,000 horsepower. Other airplanes have a fixed gear system, so they have propellers, but uh, they, the turbine uh, do not have. So they can get their best altitude is normally about 14,000, uh, 16,000 feet. Everything and above that, they can derive the full power. The power, the power starts decreasing. So the, as the power decreases, your performance decreases. So we had an unknown quantity in the P-47. And it's, we knew that the best altitude was 30,000 feet. We knew that if we stayed up high and used the weight of the airplane and its, uh, its power in a dive mode, well, we had the advantage in altitude. Never put yourself in a position where you're down low doing combat with a 109 or a 190 over their territory, particularly, because uh, the airplane was not that type of an airplane. So when the, P when the B-17s and, uh, and the B B-24s came into action over Germany, why the... Uh, the uh, Bombing altitude was about 23,000, 24,000 feet in around that uh, ballpark. So that left us, the P-47, at an altitude uh, about 26,000, 27,000 feet. And so that we were in a close proximity of the bombers at all times. And if we saw any uh, enemy aircraft coming in, we could convert our little altitude into speed and offset the uh, Luftwaffe from hitting the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the B-17s or the B-24s. So I would say that uh, the airplane did a reasonable job, but we did have our problems to start with. We had harness problems, we had detonation, so forth, high altitude, because the, uh, the distributor was not uh, pressurized, it was not sealed uh, well enough, and so forth. So uh, with, uh, with time, we resolved those problems. That is, the people in the United States resolved the problems, and we had fixes that were put to the airplane in the, in the field. So now, that takes care of the first phase. That takes care of your P-47A, which was the first airplane up until about 44, the early part of 44. Early part of 44, we received the, what they call the P-47D. The P-47 was so great, the P-47D, that is, was so great because it had a uh, 
panel braid propeller, much bigger, much wider than anything that we had on the A or B. But that was for a reason, too, because we they put water injection into the uh, airplane, which meant that now instead of drawing 2,000 horsepower uh, out of the same engine, <clears throat> to, to hold down detonation, detonation, why, to put water in, mix it with the gasoline, and that uh, held down your detonation so now we were able to increase the uh, compression increase the manifold pressure and so forth which gave us from 2,000 horses we went to 2,300 and about 85 horses so that 385 horse additional horses made it a tremendous airplane not only the uh, power but and the visibility of the pilot in the cockpit changed drastically because from a from a uh, regular uh, uh, canopy that had bars on it, we now had sort of what they call a bubble canopy that was just like looking out of uh, out of a, a tube, a glass tube. So it gave us tremendous visibility. Now. We had to learn very gradually as to what advantage that gave us over the Falkwolf 190 and the 109. And we did that gradually again. The most important thing <clears throat> that a pilot has to uh, think about is, as he's going in the combat, respect your adversary. In other words, don't underrate the ad adversary. And that was one, one big uh, advantage that we had because Zimke had experience. He was over in uh, Russia with the Lynn Len Lease airplane, and he was our group commander, the 56 fighter group. And I was with the Polish Air Force, and they had tremendous respect for the Luftwaffe. So I came back and uh, imparted a little bit of that uh, philosophy to the pilots within the 56 fighter wing. And uh, as a result, they were rather cautious until they learned more about their equipment and more a little, little more about, about the enemy. So where the Germans in the er early days, they were the pros. We in the early days were the amateurs. We knew nothing. We started out to become a pro. In other words, but you only become a pro with experience. And if you're shot down before you get that experience, you never get to be a pro. So that was the advantage that, the disadvantage that we had. We not knowing what the enemy was, and he was pretty sure because he was a pro, he was calm, cool, and collected, and we were nervous, there's no question. Not maybe nervous is not, not the real word for it. I could call it scared. Everybody was scared, but it was controlled fear. It was controlled fear. We're trained to fly the airplane. We were trained to, to be fighter pilots, and uh, with experience in combat, we, we got to be pretty good after a certain period of time. You set down certain principles uh, of combat, and our number one principle was, again, uh, hit and miss. In other words, it was advantage in altitude, come down and make your move, and don't throttle back, don't slow up. Turn that speed into altitude. 
And uh, there are certain principles that uh, you have to live by, and some people have done pretty well with a lot of airplanes destroyed to their uh, to their credit, uh, but uh, they were eventually destroyed because they slowed down for some obvious reason, so forth, in order to <coughs> not only shoot that airplane down, but the one next to it. Well, <coughs> I never did. In other words, if there were five airplanes all on side by side and I picked out my target, I didn't slow down for that airplane. My throttle was all the way forward and I came and picked off that target, but I closed into a very not what you call foot advantage. So I practically flew through the airplane. So then I came back and changed that changed my uh, speed, converted the speed into altitude again and converted that altitude again into speed as I picked out my next target. But uh, I, can, I can say that uh, some people are blessed really in many ways. They had certain faculties that the good Lord must have given them because I had <coughs> my wingman was uh, Robert Johnson, Bob Johnson, who was the second top ace in the European theater. And his eyes were the best that I have ever seen. He could pick out a spot out there when I when I was squinting and and wondering where where he sees that spot. He'd pick up that spot way off the distance, and he'd call it out to me since he was my wingman, and so forth. And uh, I, it would take me a little while to get oriented since I was a leader, get oriented and see that particular spot. Well, we lost many advantages in that because when you see the enemy or that spot, you convert your whatever it is, the altitude, to speed. You run that throttle all the way forward and try to get a little altitude over and above your enemy. Well, after few unsuccessful runs with uh, me looking for the enemy and so forth. After uh, Johnson called him in, I said, uh, Bob, I says, why don't you, when you see the airplane, you see that spot there, the bogey is what we call it, or the, or the bandit, uh, <coughs> call him in and you take over the lead and I'll be your wingman. And boy, I'll tell you from, that, from then on in why uh, we shot down quite a few airplanes because of his eyes, he was just uncanny. And I turned that just those few seconds make a lot of difference, whether it's four or five or eight or 10 seconds, makes a lot of difference. You convert that to what you have to do in order to get that initial advantage over the enemy. So Bob ended up with 27 airplanes to his credit and I ended up with 28. But really that was not our mission. Our mission was to escort the bombers, to keep the bombers, to prevent the bombers from being shot down. And I think we did an outstanding job in that particular field. It wasn't just shooting down the airplane. In other words, if a, a fighter was coming in, Luftwaffe, uh, a fighter pilot was coming in on the bombers, and we went out and and fired at him head on, and he turned over on his back and got away from the bombers, our job was complete. In other words, we'd pull right back up uh, with the bombers and, and continue our escort.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Now, that, uh, let let me put things in a little bit perspective. See, we were building up our force in the European theater from the day that I, the 56, uh, went into combat. In other words, we started out with about four escort groups, and all of a sudden we probably ended up with 33 escort fighter groups. And we did the same thing with our bombers. You know, back in uh, in 42 of August, we had our first mission of B-17s over, over France. That was 12 bombers. And we built up operationally as we were operating and dropping bombs over the enemy territory. Uh, we were still building up the numbers, and the numbers were being built up because the production was increasing. And the aircraft were sent to the European theater operation. It got to a point where the pilots that finished flying school that were going to fly the B-17s or B-24, they flew their own airplane. Can you imagine a man with 150 hours going over the north route or the, or the southern route by way of, uh, of uh, Africa? I mean, it's, it's scary. It's, it, it's scary in every sense of the word. And uh, Greenland, uh, Iceland, my God, I mean, the weather's so unpredictable, and we lost a lot of people in that particular case. But that's the only way we could get the airplane, the bombers, into the European theater of operations, which we did. And we finally ended up, towards the end, we were flying 12, 1,400 airplane raids. So we were losing, but now nah, we, we took our losses. We lost 5,000 B-17s or B-24s, heavy bombers. So that, that, that's a lot of airplanes, but we were building up. So what I'm trying to say here is it took that team. We had a good operational team in the 56th Fighter Group as well as in the 8th Air Force, and we had a good team back here in the United States that were producing airplanes. And as they produced the airplane, they made it possible for those airplanes to get to the operators in the field. So the enemy was taking its toll, but they were not excessive. The mission kept going on, and, uh, and we, uh, we made it because of the complete support and backing that we had of everybody. Finally, the training and the hard work paid off, and it was time to fly deep into enemy territory. The mission? destroy enemy transport capability before it destroyed the Allies. I uh, can talk about uh, one mission, Hopperhofen, which was deep in Germany, north of, uh, uh, north, north of the Ruhr, when I had uh, a few elements go down to strafe a train that was uh, moving along and in, in their territory. territory. 
And uh, they went down, did their work and so forth. And of course, I said I would give them top cover. So I came down from 28,000 feet down to, to 15,000. When you come down to 15,000, you see so much more detail on the ground. And when I came down to 15,000, I looked at the ground and there was an aerodrome well camouflaged, but I could see little airplanes. There was movement on the ground. And there were 190s that were taken off from that aerodrome. So after they destroyed uh, the train, they joined the, the, the group and I, or the squadron, and I went down with them, picked out my target. We let down way below, out of the, uh, what you call, periphery of the, the field and came in at treetop level. And right before us, we had Falk Wolf 190s that were taken off like, like bees. And I came in right behind, and uh, they, they, they had their wheel up, and they, they knew we were there. And they, 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 as the wheels were coming up, they ex accelerated very rapidly. And we, our rate of closure was, of course, uh, very rapid. So I came in and shot down one right, right on uh, as he was taken off, as he was airborne. And I shot down two uh, at that time. And then I pulled up. And from that time on, I mean, it was combat right over the field. And uh, I, I, the only thing I can remember is coming back again on another airplane, the third airplane, and I was ready to pull my tr trigger, and I looked to my left, and there was a Falco 190 coming down at me. So I had to break off my attack and pulled into that airplane taking, uh, coming down at me, and I turned into him, and fortunately, he didn't hit me. And uh, I corkscrewed the airplane up to about eight, 9,000 feet. As I corkscrewed the airplane up, I got the altitude and looked around, surveyed the situation again. And uh, <clears throat> there was nobody behind me. Nobody could stay up with me. So I could break combat at will. That's what I mean by breaking off combat at will. So, so I did. And that gave me all the confidence in the world with that uh, new technology that we had in the P-47. After you get to be a seasoned pilot, you think you're a pro. So, and, and you are because you've had a lot of experience and so forth, and now you're calm and collected and so forth. So after uh, uh, one pretty successful combat, why I... I uh, found myself all alone. And when you find yourself all alone, deep in Germany, it's pretty lonesome, pretty lonely. You're looking for companionship. I saw six airplanes. I said, well, I'm going to join six airplanes because it must be, uh, must be P-47. And they did look like P-47. So, <clears throat> but they were heading east. And I didn't look at my uh, uh, my uh, compass to determine what direction they were going in. But anyway, I went pulled this uh, with throttle wide open. I was uh, closing in on them, and then I pulled out to the side, 
and there were Fock Wolf 190s. I saw the big cross on the, on the fuselage, and boy, I made a quick 180, and I started heading 270 degrees instead of the 90. Well, those airplanes kept going. But now I saw another little airplane, a loner. He was coming in the opposite direction from what I was going. He was going deep in Germany, and uh, he had about, oh, I'd say he had about a thousand foot advantage over me in altitude. So I watched him, and uh, I, <laughs> I knew it was a, a German of either a 190 or a 109, so I was um, hoping that he wouldn't see me. But he did. As he went on by me, and I kept looking back, and all of a sudden he changed his course of direction. He turned into me, started turning into me 180 degrees, and I said, uh-oh. And my, my uh, fuel was running low. So I says, oh boy. So <clears throat> I made up my mind then that I'm going to run him out of fuel. So I left my uh, throttle setting at about 42 degrees to give me enough power, but not excessive power, so I don't burn up too much fuel. So I went down as he came in on me. I nosed my uh, airplane down, picked up the speed, came up in a Shondell, and came over and gave him a 90-degree deflection shot when I saw his guns, the muzzles spitting fire. It worked. I mean, a 90-degree de deflection shot, uh, that's practically an impossible uh, target to hit. But I got on by as I lost uh, my altitude with my Shondell. I nosed down again, and he went on by, did the same thing, came down and started closing in on me, and I started pulling up again. The speed and so forth I picked up in another Shondell, identical to the first one, and gave him a 90 degree deflection shot as he was firing on me. Everything worked because I was running him out of ammunition. He's gonna run out of ammunition, go home, and he let me go home. So uh, the third time he did that, everything was about the same as, uh, as the first, time, uh, first two times, and I pulled up and I made that 90-degree turn, gave him a 90-degree deflection shot, and his same distance, he was still way back there, but boy, all of a sudden, I hear a big explosion in the cockpit, and I lost power, and the airplane started falling out of the sky. Uh -oh. So, uh, my foot was numb, and I says, oh my God, I so the first thing I thought about is uh, bailing out. But then in addition to bailing out, because of my, uh, my power, I lost power immediately, uh, I had my right foot that was numb. So I had no idea what, what happened there, but I hated to look because uh, if it was shot up and so forth, that sudden shock would kind of and kind of uh, uh, put you out of the out of misery, but anyway, <clears throat> I looked and everything was normal, and I started heading down a little bit to, to to maintain my speed, flying speed, 
since my uh, uh, since my power was lost. And as I was losing a little altitude, I opened up the canopy. I was going to bail out. So I opened up the canopy, and so I, I had the canopy open, and I looked at my manifold pressure. And as I was losing altitude, my manifold pressure was building up a little bit. And as I looked at my uh, my uh, RPM, my RPM was coming up pretty well too. So then I had to conclude that I had an engine, at least I had some power, and I decided to close the close the canopy and uh, <coughs> go down uh, as fast as I could. There was a layer of clouds beneath me, and it was up to me to get to the layer of clouds before he could finish me off. Because the individual, the uh, the liftoff pilot, was looking for me after he saw me go through my uh, gyrations and so forth and started heading down. He started heading down after me again mm -hmm. and uh, finished me off before I, I could get to the, uh, the clouds. But I got to the clouds before he had a chance to close in on me, and I leveled off and stayed there for a short period of time and then I'd pull out of the clouds looked back and he was still back there looking for me so so, so <clears throat> I got called as I approached the uh, English Channel I called Mayday and so forth because I, I didn't think I was going to make it home because of shortage of fuel and so forth so uh, I uh, <clears throat> managed to have uh, air sea rescue alerted and so forth and uh, I was coming in I saw a man stand off off at a distance and there's um, there's a, a what you call a recovery base just a big recovery strip for all damaged airplanes coming in at uh, Manston and I, I went in on that uh, on that strip and as, as I uh, <coughs> settled down my hands and everything was pretty well shaken by then and uh, I but I failed failed to mention one thing the reason my foot was so numb it was a 20 millimeter high explosive that hit my rudder pedal and exploded underneath the rudder pedal the rudder pedal was shattered, and I had heavy boots on, and it penetrated the bottom of my boot, but it didn't pen penetrate my foot. And then I found out after uh, after I came to a to a stop, and we looked uh, looked the airplane over. My turbine supercharger was shot out, and I had uh, one twenty millimeter went through my oil tank, and I was just about out of oil. Another close call I've had uh, is when I <coughs> decided that since I wasn't uh, as good of a shot as many of the other people are, I had to come in close before I fired at somebody. And this one day, it was a 110 and that was coming in behind uh, uh, the B-17s, and I had plenty of altitude, and the squadron came in. There were 12 of them, and they came in, and I, I picked up one, one of the airplane. And one of those airplanes that I picked up, I was going to go real close before I started firing, and I did. 
And I came in so close firing that the pieces of the airplane start coming out, but coming off. And uh, just as I was about ready to pull off, why uh, the airplane exploded. It exploded, and well, that meant that I couldn't go up. I went down. I shoved the stick down and uh, practically closed my eyes then. And I didn't hit anything solid. And I went underneath the airplane. Well, that's another time where I had 20 millimeter that was lodged in the, in the uh, uh, cylinder head. His 20 millimeters that were, uh, that were blown out and flew into the cylinder heads. And my leading edge of the wing was crushed and so forth. And I had particles of his burnt airplane as it exploded in, because we didn't have pressurization. So it came through the vents. What I'm trying to, to, to bring out is the heat of excitement. And that goes on for a period of time until you become a little bit better, not an amateur anymore, but you're approaching the, the pro group. So when you get to be a pro, just like boxing or anything else, in other words, uh, the pro is calm, collected. He knows what his next move is going to be and so forth. And, they, and he analyzes the enemy well. So uh, <coughs> there are no miracles. There are no born fighter pilots. Some are a little better than others, and that's about it. But I would say time, training, 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 and more training is the key. To any success. I don't care what you do in life. Ace pilots like Francis Gabreski were forged in the crucible of hard combat. But as he reflects on those powerful incidents almost 60 years later, his perspective has changed. For him, the heated rush of combat is long over. A new generation must now rise to the call. A war is a young person's, what you call domain, if you want to call it the domain. But uh, if I use my judgment today as I see it, well, I, I wouldn't be involved in war. I mean, that's, uh, it, it, war is hell. And when you're young, uh, you don't have the, uh, I would say, uh, the, you have appreciation for what can happen to you, but, but it, it, you have still that unknown quantity because you haven't lived long enough, not enough experience to go back to and analyze a situation as you would when you're 50, as you would as you're 40. You're a young man. You're reckless to a certain degree. That's why you're educated, to, you're trained to do whatever your job may be. The bomber pilots had a specific job, and their, their job was about the most uh, difficult job of them all because they had to drop bombs at a certain particular point, and they couldn't take evasive action. Once they got to their IP point, they had to stay right on course, and they had all the fighters, the Luftwaffe fighters coming in head on and so forth. And uh, it takes, uh, takes iron guts, but it also takes dedication. You had sense of responsibility then. You, had, you were dedicated to your fellow man. You worked as a team. 
It wasn't an individual sort of a thing. I, you, you, we, we talked about how do you get to be uh, an age. That, that never comes to your mind. In other words, you're not working to be an age. You have a job to perform. You have a real serious responsibility to see that those bombers could come back for another day and drop the bombs on the industrial complex, on the Nazi industrial complex. So uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you've heard a lot of people say that uh, they did daring things and so forth. Uh, yes, they do daring things, but they don't think in terms of those things as daring. They feel that it, it's the thing to do. They have the feeling in their mind and their heart and the capability is there. I mean, it's just like uh, somebody drowning, and you're a great uh, swimmer and so forth. Naturally, you're going to go out there and do everything that you can in order to save that man. You become a part of him, and he could turn or pull you down under where uh, maybe he's going to take you with him. But you don't think about that. It, it's that comradeship. It's something that it's hard to explain. Motivation. Politicians don't want, don't know what motivation is because it's not in their vocabulary. It's not their game. But we've got to have motivation. We've got to have sense of responsibility. We have to have an objective, and it's a real objective, people objective. And when these people objected in time of war, I mean, it relates itself to your country. We had people to think about. We had nation to think about. The airplanes of the Allied Air Forces were the machines that changed the war. And the pilots of these amazing aircraft, brave men like Clarence Anderson and Francis Gabreski, supplied unending courage inside the planes. Without their calm, steely nerves and incredible reflexes, the air war over Europe would have taken a drastically different course. To them and their comrades, a hundred bomber crews and thousands of men on the ground, we owe our undying gratitude. you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hello everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.